Welcome back to the podcast. This is the Comics Course, which is an offering of Miskatonic University's remote education program, Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society and History, offered as a free podcast so that the ignorant masses can learn something, which they probably should do instead of watching Fox News. Uh, I am your itinerant Professor Hamby, along with my ever uh, uh, willful T.A. Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. Rowan has promised to start actually speaking into the microphone and trying to project a little bit after hearing herself on a couple of recordings. Isn't that right, Rowan? Sure. Oh, that's better. Is that what I have to do to get you to project, to get you annoyed? I can annoy you, I'm sure. Anyway, we're, we're going to try not to annoy Rowan too much, but we do want to encourage her to speak into the microphone and project a little bit. Um, you know, the listeners have said that they like hearing your contributions to the show. You're staring at me like you're hoping a nether beast will come out from under my desk and consume me. That isn't unlikely here. That, it is possible. And in fact, the office is a mess right now because... Uh, well, I put down a rug uh, to help, you know, stop the sound from bouncing around quite so much. And because the floor is really cold on my feet. And the hounds have decided this makes my office much more comfortable. And I don't know if you've ever tried to lock the hounds out from an office. Uh, but it turns out that um, locked doors aren't much of a barrier to them. It has never been. No, never. So... Anyway, we're back after a long absence. Uh, it's been crazy. Uh, I do want to say up front that we have made a decision that some weeks we are going to skip the second podcast on Thursdays. There's just so much going on. But we're still going to try to do it as much as we can. And tonight we're recording back-to-back. -back. We're doing From Hell first, and then we're doing 1010, and 1010 will drop in a couple days. Also, what's changing is a regular schedule for posting social media and for anybody who listens to this tomorrow, on Wednesday, April the 6th, I will be starting then posting the first TikTok promotional videos for the podcast. You can find my TikTok account, Prof Hamby, and all that will be in the show notes. And I'm going to start doing more robust show notes as well for people who actually read those. Um, I'm assuming that some of you can, in fact, read if you're interested in graphic literature, or maybe some of you just look at the pretty pictures because... You're education majors, and, you know, that's all you're qualified for. Um, I'm joking. Education majors, of course, know how to read. Actually, teachers are usually wonderful, intelligent people. Um, just not the ones I personally went to school with. Um, <laughs> anyway, from hell, Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell from hell. Now, one thing you said you were interested in, Rowan, was comparing... The original black and white, which you've seen before, you've sat through some of my class lectures on From Hell previously, mm -hmm. so you, you already know some of this content, and comparing that to the master edition that has been colored in. So I, I will post a comparison here on Twitter so that people can see it, but I'm going to just show you right up front, Rowan, some colored pages compared to the black and white, and here we go. The initial goal during, at the top of Prologue, The Old Men on the Shore. What do you think? I really much 
much more of a forever black and white. I don't know why it just really matches the theme and kind of makes it feel more dramatic. Right. And I don't mind the colorized version, but the I don't know, it just doesn't feel right to me. Like we look at these colored pages and they don't have the emotional depth to them that the black and white does in my opinion. I mean, we we compare for example here the page where Prince Albert is kissing Annie Crook's hand with the color versus the black and white and I just feel like the black and white has more style to it, more more impact. Agreed. Also, I don't really like the shading on the color one. It just feels very bland and boring like they color like they just paint bucketed in the color right and it does feel that way it feels like it was heavily done with a paint fill bucket tool mm -hmm. um and it does i agree have the impact of covering up some of the amazing shading and hatching that eddie campbell did huh. so i i will post some comparisons uh of this i'm you're pointing what yeah like if you compare that ceiling in the black and white to the colored one it, you can see it's lost all its detail in the fact that it's wood. Right. In the colored one. Yeah. In the colored one, it's just kind of this gray mass. Mm -hmm. Is it wood? Is it straw? Is it thatch? Yeah. And also, I would argue, look at Annie Crook's face there in the colored versus the black and white. Her face looks almost swollen and flat. And it seems to have less emotion in it. You've lost detail around the mouth from the coloring. Yeah, it's like someone went in and did a very sloppy job while trying to paint bucket stuff in. Right. So in the black and white, you see this upward curve of her mouth. You know, she's grinning at the guy that was just flirting with her and is waving from outside the window in the black and white. And in the colored one, her face seems almost neutral. Yeah, she seems almost uncomfortable looking. Right. And so the intent is totally changed. Which, given that her relationship with this man is at the heart of the story, is not a good thing at all. So, I'm going to switch back to the black and white for as we discuss this. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell folks up front, I am not going to talk about every possible aspect of this story. I could do a whole class on From Hell if I got into every tiny piece of minutia. And so I'm not going to do that. Now, From Hell is uh, subtitled Being a Melodrama in 16 Parts. That includes a prologue and epilogue. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to discuss at least the prologue in Chapter 1. I might include Chapter 2 also if we have time, but I don't want the podcast to run too long. And the prologue is entitled The Old Men on the Shore. However, before we get into that, I do want to cover a few of the things said uh, in the introductory page. We have a sort of funky little symbol, and then Alan Moore's sort of information that he wants to give people up front before they read. And so this is the initial impression we're supposed to get before we start reading from hell. The first thing he does is to find the word autopsy. A noun dissection or examination of a dead body to determine cause of death. Obviously, that happens in From Hell quite a bit. And although this particular story uh, kind of glosses over it, there's actually quite a bit of interpretation and disagreement 
about the nature of the autopsies done on the Jack the Ripper victims. And I'll talk about that a little bit as we go along. Trust me, I see things that often, frequently, flippantly say things about, uh, for example, oh, Jack the Ripper was inconsistent because one body was just brutally cut up and another one was done with the skill of a surgeon, or this was clearly done with the skill of a surgeon. This is actually all debatable. The, uh, the, the coroners, the doctors who acted as coroners and investigated the bodies were not entirely reliable. So that, that adds a twist there. Uh, definition number two, an eyewitness observation. Now, obviously, a lot is happening in the shadows and a lot is hidden. And what is actually observed is important. And number three, a critical analysis. Now, this is really where Alan Moore is going with this story, because, yes, he's telling a story, but he wants us to do critical analysis. I mean, Alan Moore is telling us something that he believes is bullshit. He knows that the premise he's using for this story is bullshit. So he's not trying to convince us of a truth. He doesn't want to do that. He wants to get to something that he considers more significant than the truth of the events. He's using the events as a lens to look at England at that point in time and how England became what it was in the 20th century, uh, trailing off from that point of time of the late 1880s. So, critical analysis. Then he has a quote from Charles Fort. One measures a circle beginning anywhere. This is, again, important to Alan Moore's thinking that we have this holistic image we can investigate of what has happened in the 20th century, and you can begin it anywhere, and his beginning point just happens to be Jack the Ripper. And then we have a quote from Sir William Gohl himself, from Gohl's published papers. Quote, everything must be considered with its context, words, or facts, end quote. Now, this doesn't really say much of anything. I, I actually think Moore just included this because he wanted a quote from William Gohl <laughs> on the forward page. <laughs> but of course, everything has to be considered with its context. <laughs> but let's remind ourselves that while I think Moore has a substantial point in From Hell, multiple in fact, he also likes to fuck with people. I mean, you can tell this if you just watch interviews with Alan Moore. I think he's sincere in his interviews, but he likes, you know, twisting the expectations of people watching, which makes him kind of fun. So let's start with the prologue, the old men on the shore. We start with an image of a gull that's been, uh, uh, something has happened to it. It's dead. It, it has bones sticking out from its body. It's lifeless, and we start with a close-up of it, and the close-up is Gull is dead. Now, of course, we have a character, Sir William Gull, so every time we talk about Gulls, consider that this is an implicit metaphor for the character of Sir William Gull. Now, I do feel it necessary to stay up front for our audience. The Sir William Gull of From Hell is nothing like the Sir William Gull of actual history. And we'll talk about that some as we go on. But there was a Sir William Gull. He was a very renowned and very respected physician. Uh, and from hell, he clearly has a lot of issues with women. However, the actual historical William Gull, whatever his personal attitudes, I don't know. 
but in a time period where women's rights were just really getting started in England in an organized form, he pushed for women being able to take the exams in medical school. He pushed for examinations being considered purely on the basis of the skill of the person taking them and not their gender. And he personally provided funds to help provide scholarships for female doctors. So I don't think the historical William Gull uh, should be confused with the fictional Sir William Gull of this story. Also, this story paints Sir William Gull as this inner circle member of the royal uh, court, basically. And actual history seems to indicate that while Sir William Gold did help treat Prince Albert Victor, and uh, was well recognized for that, he was given a title, he was given a stipend, he never, in fact, treated the Queen, and I'm not sure he even ever met her. So calling him one of the Queen's most trusted physicians, as this does repeatedly, is probably an overstatement. Yeah, Gold here is just a stand-in for the story Alan Moore wants to tell. Right, and, and he is a fictional character here, a fictional version of a historical figure. So people need to understand that. So we're told this is Bournemouth, September 1923. I'm not familiar with the location, but, I'm but it's a shoreline in England. And we see two tiny figures walking in the distance towards where the goal is, the viewpoint we're given remains fixed on the gull, the dead gull. And as they walk, we see them panel by panel become closer until one of them can move it with his walking stick. The figures are James Hinton Lee and Frederick Abernathy. And now this is 1923. It is 35 years after the Ripper murders. So these are older men than the ones who appear in the story once we go back in time. Frederick Abernathy was the detective who was essentially in charge of the Ripper murders. And for those who don't know, Frederick Abernathy actually spent a whole bunch of his career in Whitechapel as a young policeman. He got promoted and moved out of Whitechapel, which meant pay raises and better positions, and it was prestigious. And then when everything went tits up with the Jack the Ripper investigation, they basically transferred him back to Whitechapel, which was in some ways functionally a demotion, although not in pay or anything, because they desperately felt that they needed people who actually knew the neighborhood and had positive interactions. Because part of the problems they were having with the investigation was that they flooded the area with cops who the locals didn't trust or know. They needed someone with a good reputation. Right, and somebody that people would talk to because they really hoped that somebody knew more and they just weren't willing to tell it to the cops. Mm -hmm. Which was a reasonable thought. Mm -hmm. So they're walking along and they're talking about politics. They're talking about communism and socialism. And Hinton, uh, James Hinton Lee comes from a middle class background. He's very pro-socialist. He talks about the revolution that's coming and even the middle class want it. And Abernathy says, well, that's just it. You're middle class. You know, the middle class likes the idea of a revolution. I come from the working class. We vote Tory because we just want more money. 
And that is a conversation you could have today in America replacing the classes. And I suspect, although I'm not British, but I suspect the British could will still have that conversation today. Uh, or, or transfer it to Canada with their classes, uh, their political classes. I'm not sure what the uh, Canadian political parties are commonly called or how many of them they are. Um, but yeah, and part of the reason for this conversation is to put in context that this is the 20th century and they're having a very 20th century com- discussion. I mean, this is 1923, so compare that in time to events happening all over the world with the rise of communist governments, uh, especially Russia and China. So we have trans- we are starting here now, 35 years after the Ripper murders, in sort of this new 20th century. But after this, we're going to go back in time. And in fact, we're going to jump forward and, ta- forward and backwards in time quite a bit in this story, sometimes at the most unexpected times. Now... I talked about Frederick Abernathy's role. What I didn't talk about was James Hinton Lee's role in everything. James Hinton Lee, it's important to understand, was a psychic. And by psychic, I mean con man. Now, James Hinton Lee basically wrote books about his psychic abilities. He made claims to channel spirits. In fact, he does a thing where he talks to Abernathy here and says, I made it up. And Abernathy pauses and goes, what? What? I said I made it up. The vision of Mr. McDonald? All of them. All the visions. I made them up. And then he proceeds to show him faking these sort of epileptic uh, uh, spirit spasms. And says sometimes, you know, to give it real confidence, he'd even pee on himself. You know, to make it really feel real. Now, James Hinton Lee was, in fact, known for these spasms. This was an age where people were fascinated by mysticism and spiritualism and all this kind of stuff. And ideas of spiritualism and mysticism will run through this. Now, Alan Moore himself has claimed a deep interest in occultism, although he's also at times indicated that he is interested in it as a metaphor. Now, there are characters in here, including those behind the Ripper murders, who are very embedded in occultism. and But we start the book with a man saying it's all bullshit. So, you know, obviously that, that plays into the themes of the story, that people lie to themselves and they readily accept the lies of others when it's what they already want to believe. And of course, that's a meta-commentary on the story itself, that people believe these ludicrous ideas about Sir William Gull and Prince Albert Victor as being the cause of the Ripper murders because it's so sensational they want to believe it. So Alan Moore starts the story by very subtly telling us that you should not believe anything he's going to say, but be prepared to be entertained. And uh, uh, by the way, there, there is... Frederick Abernathy is a historical figure. James Hinton Lee was a historical figure as well. He did, in fact, try to interject himself into the Ripper murder investigation. He was pretty much thrown out by the cops who considered him a joke. Uh, He claimed that the uh, Queen Victoria 
was very uh, uh, interested in his talents and engaged him. Actual historical records show that he sent her a copy of his book, which was received by her office, and there's no indication that she ever looked at it, and she certainly never invited him to court or anything. So, however, he did make something of a career of himself uh, later in life, basically selling himself out to parties and claiming that he had solved the Ripper murders. That's believed to be the case. Now, we don't know the inner details. And, and let me say of James Hinton Lee, he never had a reputation as a successful spiritualist in England associated with the Ripper murders. Ironically, some newspapers in America picked up the story about him solving the Ripper murders, and he gained a reputation for it that sort of built the idea of him associating him with the murders, but not in England, <laughs> where it actually happened. Um, and this was a time period when people didn't declare on their taxes every bit of money they made. In fact, taxation was kind of a different thing of the realm back then. Um, and, and we know that figures like Abernathy and Hinton certainly were invited to a lot of parties. A lot of parties, they probably got a little gift for attending, but it wasn't recorded publicly anywhere. I mean, if you're throwing a party and you want, you know, Frederick Abernathy to show up, who was the lead investigator of the Ripper murders, you don't advertise to your friends that you had to pay him to show up. You advertise that he's your friend. So we don't know how much he made, but we do know that he retired somewhere very nice, somewhere that you don't get off a Scotland Yard pension. Now, some people have claimed this is proof that he was paid off. That's extraordinarily unlikely. <laughs> the kinds of people we're talking about that they claim paid Abernathy off would have just, you know, made him disappear much more easily than pay him off. Um, and then, a a as these two walk along the beach and talk, they run in the dunes into this man who is having coitus with a lady, a presumably a lady of the night. And Abernathy proceeds to um, be pretty ugly about it. You cow, you cheeky little cunt. You come back here. I'll have your guts for garters. He obviously has issues with women and issues with prostitutes. Um, and and w as we go through the story, you'll see a little bit of why. At least this fictional Abernathy. Now, I talked about Sir William Gull being fictional because it's a pretty major character to talk about in that context. But it's important that every character where we get into their personal lives here, like Frederick Abernathy, is also a fictional version of a historic figure. And so let's be very careful separating that because there is a danger here that's fascinating. Now, a lot of times when we talk about graphic lit, we're talking about entirely fictional universes, especially when we talk about like superheroes and stuff. You know, the amount of reality in the average Marvel or DC Comics book is incredibly small. Like maybe the shapes of buildings and the existence of gravity. And even gravity is pretty flexible. I was about to say. <laughs> but here, we're talking about actual historic figures, but they're all fictionalized, which is interesting because 
you know, frankly, Jack the Ripper ha- is becoming a mythology in its own right. There are many people who know Jack the Ripper more from fictional uh, uh, entertainment than books. And, and of course, as I mentioned about the skills of the doctors who acted as coroners, there are many myths about it. And the number of amateur ripperologists with varying levels of knowledge is pretty dramatic, you know, with wide degrees of variance. So as they finally leave, Abernathy's last comment about the woman is, fucking tart. And he goes into his house and they retire. As we move forward into chapter one, we jump backwards in time. Now, Alan Moore is kind of a dick in what he does here because he doesn't tell us when we're jumping to immediately. Instead, the first panel just says, chapter one, the affections of Mr. S. And then we see a woman's hand in a jar and we're given a guess that this must be some sort of establishment with confections or candies because we see Cadbury's chocolate candy up there on one of the jars. But it's not until we get further down that we see London, July 1884. So we're now going back four years before the Ripper murders began. And we see two figures standing there. Over the course of the few panels, we find out who these characters are. One is Annie Crook. The other is Mr. Siskert. And the other is introduced as his younger brother, the young Mr. S. Now, Annie Crook is critical to that uh, uh, absurd plot of the final solution where it is claimed that she secretly married and bore a child to Prince Albert Victor, um, who was in the line for the throne of England, grandson of Queen Victoria. Siskert was a well-known painter. And in fact, some ripperologists have even proposed that he was the ripper. Uh, Part of the basis of that being, A, that he had a uh, painting space, a, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Studio in Whitechapel. But he had multiple studios in multiple places. He was very well-to-do. And that he displayed some paintings shortly after the murders began that were very dark and very brutal and very moody uh, featuring women. And he lay, I forget the exact titles, but he labeled them uh, related to the Ripper murders. However, the problem with that is that it's actually known from catalogs that those were paintings he had painted many years before the Ripper murders with totally different titles but they were moody and had women, so he relabeled them to be relevant to the Ripper murders to help sell them. Because a man's got to make money. Right. It was a business decision. They were just moody portraits of women. That's all they really were. They weren't prophetic portraits of women about to be killed. They were just moody women looking out over gloomy London streets. That was it. Now, uh, Annie Crook, according to the theory, is the woman that Prince Albert would secretly marry and then bear him a child 
and the grandson of whom is the one who brought the story forward and later recounted it and admitted that he made it all up, and the events of which set all of the murder stuff in motion four years later. So here we're now here before that. Now, the young Mr. S, who's introduced as Albert, Albert Siskert, is in fact Prince Albert Victor of the royal family. And this storyline takes the premise that Siskert is so trusted by the royal family that they entrust the sickly Prince Albert to Mr. Siskert to get him out and socialized and used to interacting with people. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was concerned about a potential heir to the throne being socialized, I wouldn't attach him to a painter and say, go have fun in the slums. Now that they're in the slums now, this is a nice confectioner shop. However, its address is given. And here's an interesting bit of trivia. Um, it is directly across the street from a homosexual brothel that was raided by the police around this time. And Alan Moore doesn't state it, but in the story, but he has said it in other contexts that what he was trying to imply was that Siskert was taking him out to get some boy ass. <laughs> well, then he's socializing. Well, he's socializing, right. Um, and it's like, hey, we got a little boy ass. Now let's go get some sweets. So that's what they're doing. And Albert kind of falls for Annie Crook here. And he flirts with her, and she's really impressed. And then we have a page. And, you know, warning here for people who are bothered by this. There is explicit nudity, and in fact, one panel of explicit sexual coitus here. Uh, this is not a story for little kids. But uh, it, it, if you're concerned about teenagers reading this, um, I'm going to go ahead and tell you this is 2022. And even if you have Safe Search locked on their uh, 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 search settings, um, they've probably seen more explicit than this just by accident, even if they aren't going to look for it. Because the internet. It's just the truth, folks. So, uh, there, I will say up front, there is nudity at places in the story. There is sexual content. In my opinion, it is not gratuitous. It is relevant. This was a time period with... Uh, uh, you know, Whitechapel was not a place that people went to and drank tea with their pinkies out and ate cucumber sandwiches with the uh, crust cut off. Sometimes, you know, a quick shag was their way of getting through the day. So as we move forward, we see that Annie Crook is sometimes a model for Siskert. And there was an Annie Crook uh, originally from Ireland who was a model for Siskert. And she ends up attached to Albert Victor. And they end up marrying in secret in a church. He doesn't give his real name, of course. But under common law of the time, that meant he was legally married to Annie Crook. If it had actually happened, which it didn't. Now, Annie Crook was also Irish and Catholic. And if you want a grand trifecta... Can you say that again? Hmm. Sorry, Siri thought I was talking to her. Um, if you want a trifecta of things to piss off 
the the Anglican British family of the time. You know, the crown prince marrying a commoner who was Irish and Catholic. I mean, he might as well have grabbed a lady boy from Thailand. That might have been less offensive to the average, you know, uh, 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 Londoner of the time. <laughs> and, and Siskert might have preferred it too. Um, so they get married. She gets knocked up. They have a kid. We transition into the story where the child now exists. And Albert has had to say that he has to go off on business. Now, of course, it's royal family business, but his bride doesn't know that. So she travels to Paris uh, via ship with Siskert and another friend. This is, of course, pre-Chunnel, before, you know, England was connected by underground tunnels to uh, the continent. And as we see them talking, there's a couple of interesting bits of symbology, including one that there's a goal or multiple goals circling overhead. Now, remember, every time we see a goal, implicitly, it is Sir William Goal. Now, Sir William Goal is in many ways the villain of this story. And so as we see Annie Crook with the child, the symbolism is very clear. The goals are beginning to circle. The events that will lead Goal into the story are now set in motion that Crook has an infant child. And if you want a little more precursor to the conflict, she speaks negatively of the queen. She says, you know what we call the Her Majesty over in Ireland? To hell with her and her children and her children's children. We call her the Famine Queen. So she's saying to hell with her children, which are the parents of her husband, and to hell with her children's children, which is her husband, <laughs> although she doesn't know it, and the Famine Queen, which is something that the Irish called her. I mean, uh, uh, it was earlier in time, but this is still a time period when Swift's a modest proposal would have resonated with the Irish population and Irish sympathizers. And if you're not familiar with a modest uh, proposition, it was a satirical essay written by Jonathan Swift where he said that he had a solution to the Irish problem and that the, what they could do was turn the Irish people into commodities that they could use financially, like turning the babies into, you know, boiling the babies into fat for candles. Um, now, this was satire, because what Jonathan Swift was trying to say is, we're already doing this metaphorically. We're already torturing these people and treating them horribly. And, uh, I, I mean, there's obviously a long history of antagonism between the British and the Irish for this reason. And I'm not going to go too far into that, but it's important to understand that Annie Crook is Irish. So, she's unknowingly married into this royal family, and it will have consequences. And the goals are circling. So back in London, she's supposed to meet back up with Albert. And as Siskert do goes down the street, he suddenly sees this mob present. And he runs. He runs like a maniac to try to warn everybody. But he's too late. Basically, somebody has found out what's going on. And essentially an equivalent of the secret police, have been dispatched 
to kidnap Albert Victor, bring him back to the palace and put him under watchful eyes and to make his wife and child disappear so that nobody knows about them and to stage a, fa a riot around the space so that nobody sees them being taken away. And the only person left after all of this is Siskert, who's kind of hidden away and picks up a scarf left behind by Annie Crook. Now, the other person, however, who knows about much of this is the other woman that was with her on the boat, the other model of Siskert, and we will talk more about her later because her actions are what will trigger the involvement of Gull. So that brings us all the way up to chapter two. Uh, oh, and I just realized I, 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 I was uh, uh, um, misspeaking the name of the psychic. I'm feeling really stupid. Hinton is a different character who will come up in a little bit. The psychic is Robert James Lee. Sorry, my brain cross names there. How many times have I done this and I my brain cross names? Oh my Lord. Sorry about that, folks. Sorry if that's confusing. But yes, Robert James Lee is the psychic. James Hinton uh, touches on some other characters we'll talk about in just a second. Man, I'm, I think I'm getting old and senile. So, chapter two is State of Darkness. There are nine panels on this page, and they're all black, just dialogue. And we're told that we're at the Limehouse Cut, July 1827. Now, do you know what a cut is? No. Well, if you were from, say, Birmingham, you might know what a cut is. A cut is where an area has been cut out underground, like a tunnel connecting waterways. So you can move from one waterway to another. So the reason they're in darkness is that whoever is in this chapter, we find out in a moment, are basically on a boat moving from one area to another and they don't have any light. But a state of darkness is more than physical absence of light. It's also ignorance here. Remember, light here is symbolic of knowledge and understanding. And we're in 1827. So here we are going back 61 years before the Ripper murders. So we see some people talking in the dark. And one of them, in quotes, asks, what is the fourth dimension? And this is asked several times. It goes back and forth. And then, at, then we finally see in the distance a little bit of light as the cut is coming towards an opening. And then we see a boy sitting on the front of a boat. And then as the boat comes out into the light, gulls are circling him. And this is the young William Gull. A, very, a young boy, I think under 10 years old. So by the time of the Ripper murders, he was like in his 70s, I believe. You know, not exactly a man capable of great violence without major problems. But anyway, that, that gets into the whole issues of could Gull have actually committed them? 
and we'll talk more about that later. We also see an older man on the boat. That was Gull's father. Now, Gull's father died when he was fairly young. Gull was mostly raised by his mother. He always adored his mother and spoke of her in these extremely positive tones. So as we talk about the treatment of women and Gull's attitudes towards women in this, we end up seeing this weird paradoxical attitude of both adoration of women and hatred of them, which was probably Gull, might have been Gull's attitude, we don't know, but certainly is the fictional Gull's attitude because he adored his mother, but she was also this very overbearing figure in his life. And knowing Alan Moore the way I do from his multiple works, I have no doubt that this is symbolic to him of the British attitude towards women in general. Mm -hmm. That they're supposed to be these uh, uh, virginal figures who are put up on a pedestal and are simultaneously treated like trash. So the young William, so this chapter is really about the young William Gull and the shaping of his life. We next see him when his father has passed away and his mother is there and he is out in the yard finding dead rats to cut up. Now there's a couple of purposes to this. One of which is it does show an early interest he had in anatomy and dissection. And indeed, he was considered a prodigy. He graduated with medical honors. He was considered an expert in many fields. So it's appropriate that his interest in naturalism, even dissection, started very young. However, cutting up dead bodies of animals is also how psychopaths often start. So if you see your kid chopping up dead bodies, they're either going to be a doctor or a serial killer. Take your guess. Or, if it's the fictional William Gold, both. <laughs> right? So then we jump to Goal as an adult. He is performing an actual autopsy. And he is talking to somebody who obviously is about to sponsor him in a Masonic lodge. And then we see him go through a ceremony. He's being dressed uh, in these ritualistic clothes. He's having a noose put around his neck. This is all Freemasonry stuff. And the Freemasons play an important role in this story. Now, Freemasons are always popular, sort of quasi-cult, uh, quasi-Illuminati figures, and a lot of, you know, conspiracy theories, because people love for there to be a secret organization of bad guys. The truth is that in this story, very clearly, the Freemasons are basically an elite social order of people who have access to the throne and who the throne expects things of, which is maybe realistic. And I, I've personally never been interested enough in Freemasonry to learn about all the distinct versions and Egyptian hermetic Freemasonry versus this and that. But my understanding is this is representative of Egyptian uh, uh, mystical influences on Freemasonry, or at least what Freemasons claimed were ancient Egyptian mystic influences. For the purpose of this story, the fact that they believe it is enough and events of a mystical nature that occur might actually be occurring or they might be the delusions of people involved in the story. Either way, it works for the purposes of the story. 
And I mention all that explicitly because as we run into these and as we talk about mysticism as practiced by Freemasons or Gull or other characters in here, I don't want people to get hung up on, well, is it real? Are they actually summoning an Indian deity? You don't need to worry about that. They, at least some people in the story, especially Gull, have a mentally unhealthy obsession with it, and that's all you really need to understand, that as he descends into madness, he certainly believes it's real. And there are things that happen that are that you can measure a circle at any point as the beginning. Things are running in a circle. In this case, they're talking about time. And Alan Moore's point there is very simple. You can jump from 1888 in Whitechapel to 1988 in modern London, and although things seem radically different, the underlyingness is the same. The culture is fundamentally the same. As different as things look, it's more the same than different, which is not a good thing. So Gull is introduced into this order of Freemasons. He becomes very high up in it. He is very elite. And at the bottom of one page, we just randomly get that from the prologue, that dead Gull on the seashore again with the guys in the distance. Why? Because we're doing another little time jump here because all points in the circle are the same mathematically. And Gull's introduction directly leads to the events of the two men on the seashore, Abernathy and Lee, with the dead gull. And then we see essentially what's happened to Annie Crook. Um, there are these poor houses and asylums, and Crook has basically been lobotomized, and her child set off. Now, the actual history of what happened to Annie Crook is a little bit more dubious. Uh, we do know that she survived. She do know, we do know that she didn't live out her life in an asylum. We do know that she had medical problems. I don't know of any actual historical data that indicates that she was actually lobotomized. Yeah. Um, but we do know that she had problems. But we also know that her daughter grew up hale and healthy. Yeah. Um, and according to the insane theory that painter Siskert later married the daughter. What? Which is not true. It's not true at all. Why do we keep theorizing about marriages when we have documentation? Well, the documentation from that time period is not as good as we would like. Mm -hmm. But you throw out a theory to ripperologists, and they will put more manpower into this than has been spent on the analysis of the Kennedy's Zapruder film. Which, if you're not familiar with that, that was, uh, some people believe, the only film that showed the JFK assassination. That's actually not true. There were a number of films, but it was the best and most complete of them, and therefore the one that's usually referenced. And, and has been subject to insane amounts of scrutiny over the decades. And I say insane because people have re-scrutinized it over and over and over again, hoping that if they watch it, for the 150,000th time that suddenly they will see that one speck of dirt that will solve it all for them that nobody else has ever seen before. They're not solving it at this point. Well, I, I'm not going to get into the Kennedy assassination here. We got enough to talk about yeah. with Jack the Ripper. 
But then, uh, as the chapter is heading towards the conclusion, we see Gull out walking with Hinton Sr. Sorry, I, I got the name right this time. And they're looking at these buildings, uh, the Freemasonry uh, influence on London and its architecture and its buildings is important here and becomes important later in the story. And Hinton talks about his son, Hinton Jr., James Hinton Jr., who is working on a pamphlet about mathematics called What is the Fourth Dimension? Now, uh, the Fourth Dimension was originally published in 1880. It was later expanded, I think, into a larger pamphlet. But it, it, it basically talked about how in three spatial dimensions uh, you can imagine cross-sections of a static fourth-dimensional arrangement of lines. That is time. And this idea of this arrangement passing through a three-dimensional plane anticipated some later ideas in geometry and math. And this idea of what is the fourth dimension and how time can pass through a physical state of planes is an idea, albeit without a great deal of mathematical understanding, but nonetheless one that uh, Moore is working with to provide this idea of this circle of time and how time can at places sort of jump. And this interacts with the buildings of London and this quasi-mysticism and the Freemasons built these buildings and something mystical is happening. But it actually doesn't matter for the plot. All the times these things happen are irrelevant to the plot. But they're not irrelevant to Moore's meaning. And so if you want to think they're actually happening, that's fine. If you want to think it's entirely in Gull's head, that's fine. It doesn't change the meaning. So don't get hung up on it. And then as we head towards the end of the chapter, I really like what Eddie Campbell does here. So we have this space of this big cathedral, but instead of flooding it with light from the windows, the lights, the windows with the light are spots in the darkness. And then we go to a panel of complete black. And then as we go to the next page, we go back and forth between these extremely bright panels and these extremely dark ones. And it really plays with the movement of the eye from panel to panel. I think it's brilliant. And then we transition to this huge checkerboard page where these Freemasons are meeting. And they're showing off, uh, you know, the symbolism of their occult symbols, which, you know, frankly, are kind of blasphemous to... Christian, you know, uh, uh, mythologies. And I, I'm sorry if people are offended by my use of the term Christian mythology, but it is a mythology. And then we see the Queen, Queen Victoria. We get a big uh, two-thirds page with just her sitting there in this, uh, this almost brutally cross-hatched background of texture that fades out to nothingness which implies something very simple. She's the center of the universe. Or at least what Londoners think is the universe. <laughs> and she's summoned Dr. Gull because he's the trusted physician. And she has a problem to solve. And she wants his involvement. 
And of course, the problem is they need to make sure that all the loose ends are tied up uh, regarding her grandson's marriage to Annie Crook. So Gold's going to take care of that. Gold's going to basically lobotomize her. Gold's going to... And then we see... This is just... Alan Moore got really weird here. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the historical figure of the Elephant Man. He was an actual figure. He had horrible deformities, uh, suffered from genetic conditions. He became kind of a celebrity of Victorian England. Um, And for reasons that I, to this day, do not fully understand, Alan Moore decided to repeatedly insert him in the story, along with Dr. Gold making references to the Indian god Ganesh, which was an elephant god. And I think this is an example of Alan Moore just fucking with the reader. I don't, it has no actual meaning of the story in any significant form, in my opinion. He just wanted to have fun with his writing at that point. Yeah, and and, I mean, I can't blame him for that. I really can't. So as the story continues, um, we see Siskert's model, who's been out in the countryside, She's been away from London. She's been trying to make money. She's not doing well. And we're going to talk more about her later. But uh, she decides to return to London. And the Queen looks at Dr. Gole and says, we leave it in your hands. That is all. Now, we also meet the cabbie, the driver of the Hanson. Right. Now, he was Siskert's handsome driver. And he becomes Goals. Actually, I'm not sure he was even Siskert's. Correction. He was with Siskert at the beginning of the story with Prince Albert. But he's but he's obviously associated with the royal family in some way. So presumably he works for the palace. And he was probably there because of Albert. But now he is essentially picked up by Goal and becomes Goal's accomplice in the Ripper murders. Now, I'm kind of jumping over things here, but you can read the chapter for yourself. I think this covers the critical points. So at this point, uh, what we have, and we're just near an hour now, which is why I didn't want to go over every little point. We have Dr. Gull, who grew up with a woman who gave his life structure, but was also very overbearing his mother. He's indoctrinated into this occultist, elite society of Freemasonry. He's trusted by the Queen. He is assigned to get rid of the problem of Annie Crook by making sure she can never say anything, which, frankly, a lower-class woman in London in the 1880s had no rights whatsoever. So this is not hard to imagine. Mm -hmm. And... Siskert, who knows about this, uh, but has basically hidden himself and just kept himself out of things and his mouth shut. And then Annie's friend and also model of Siskert, who has wandered off and been out of London and is now looking to come back. And this sets the stage for chapter three and onward. And as we hit chapter three, 
we start talking about the actual events that begin everything with the murders. So we're at 55 minutes. I think we should call it here. Do you have any thoughts or questions at this point? No. I didn't. Con I, I do apologize to everybody for the name screw up. This is what I get for doing things from memory. This but is why you need to write more notes. Clearly. You're saying I should actually write notes? Yeah. Oh, lordy me. Well, uh, I think actually we're going to record 1010 tomorrow, but it will be out on Thursday, mm -hmm. and we're ready for it. Mm -hmm. And... I know you've heard me lecture about From Hell before. Mm -hmm. uh, I think this is your first time seeing it page by page. What do you think of the art? I really like it. I think it really fits the story and the tone really well. Cool. Well, I will have links for Twitter accounts and websites and TikTok and all that in the show notes. I invite people to go check those out. Uh, I, I, In fact, after I hit stop on this, I will be pulling out sound clips and prepping Twitter posts and TikToks and all that fun stuff. So feel free to uh, hook up with me on social media. And until next time, keep reading comics. Bye. <laughs>